What's going on, everybody? This is Mario Zapata, your host for the MMA Fresh Take podcast. We're back with a big episode today. Wasn't able to get one out in the middle of the week, so I do apologize for that. Wasn't able to give my predictions on Marlon Marais versus Jimmy Rivera that went down last night on Friday night in Utica. And then wasn't able ever to get to the Stephen Wonderboy Thompson versus Darren Till controversial result. But we'll get to all of that today. We'll also break down or discuss Michael Bisping announcing his retirement. And then we'll take a look at the very strange Yair Rodriguez situation that has occurred over the past month or so. Uh, Very, very strange. But let's talk about these fights first that happened in these past uh, two weeks. First, we'll start out with the Stephen Wonderboy Thompson versus Darren Till fight card. There wasn't a whole lot that was going that that felt there wasn't a whole lot exciting about this card unfortunately for Liverpool England and the real hope was that there was going to be an action packed fight that uh, took place in the main event between two elite strikers but unfortunately that did not take place as well. There was some interesting action on the card things that I took notice that I did appreciate watching from that card were things such as Macwan Amir Khani versus Jason Knight, which was a back-and-forth fight, a very entertaining fight. Jason Knight absolutely uh, striking with immense power in that first round, knocking Amir, uh, Amir Khani down twice, as Macwan was very hyper-confident going into that fight, and they were both trash-talking quite a, quite a bit. Amir Khani was able to get the upper hand and the grappling exchanges in those second and third rounds. Very, very close split decision loss for Jason Knight. Tough going there for him as he was really in a need in need of a win. For Amir Khani, this is a big win for him. He calls out Cub Swanson afterwards, but I'm not so sure that he's exactly on that level as of just yet. If he had trouble with Knight the way that he did, it's going to be tough for him to go on and face a guy like Cub Swanson and come out victorious in a fight like that. Although his grappling did look nice, his conditioning was a little bit better than uh, some of his fights in the past. Tom Breeze defeating Daniel Kelly by TKO punches in the first round. Very, very impressed there. Tom Breeze is a guy that looks like a real nice uh, size middleweight. He looks like he's got a lot of the tools that he would need in order to become a contender in that fight. Um, so he's just got to put it all together and see where he goes from there. Of course, Elias Theodoro defeated Trevor Smith by a unanimous decision. One of the downfalls to this card was Molly McCann was su- submitted by tech- by rear naked choked to Jillian Robertson. She was able to get the win over Molly McCann. She McCann was uh, looked upon as one of the hometown people that was going to maybe garner some star power after that that fight, but she wasn't able to get be victorious. She had won a title previously in Cage Warriors, so she wasn't able to translate that to her UFC debut. Ar- Arnold Allen against Mads Burnell. This was one heck of a comeback for Arnold Allen. He was getting uh, pretty much dominated, it felt like. He wasn't able to really get his striking off too much and wasn't really in position to use his athleticism to his advantage. Mads Burnell was just relentless in grappling with him, tiring Arnold Allen out. It became very obvious, I believe, towards the end of that second round that Arnold Allen was becoming very fatigued from all the grappling exchanges. But Arnold Allen uh, never gave up. He went for a guillotine as he was being taken down by Burnell as a takedown attempt was being attempted. And uh, he was able to lock it up and get the tap from Mads Burnell. So 
fantastic win for Arnold Allen. Let's see if he can become a little bit more um, active in his fight career. He has had past two or three years just one fights in each year. He is 25 at this point. A little bit disappointing to see the type of performance he put out there for a guy that some people thought as an up-and-coming prospect in, in, you know, in the UK ranks, of course. Um, would like to see him fight in America here pretty soon, just get some different type of exposure. It feels like he's been fighting a ton in Europe lately, but he did fight a tough guy to, in Mads Burnell. Burnell, a guy who hasn't had the best of luck in the UFC as of just yet, but definitely a talented fighter, so definitely like to see what he can do going forward as well. Neil Magny absolutely just uh, crushing Craig White with a, a knees and punches that re ended up and resulted in a KO win for Neil Magny. Craig White coming over from Cage Warriors was put in a tough position after Gunnar Nelson pulled out of the fight, of course, because it's really tough to come in against a top 10 welterweight or top 15 welterweight in Neil Magny and see how you're going to be able to game plan around that and, and uh, be better than him on fight night, especially when Neil Magny had a full training camp and it's just on a different level at this point in their careers right now. So Neil Magny actually called out Kamaru Usman, and let's take a look at the rankings right here. Kamaru Usman, welterweight. So if you look like what's ahead, I, I think that that's actually a pretty good fight right there. You could possibly do Santiago Ponzinibbio if you wanted to, but Dana White was pretty impressed with Neil Magny. Just really appreciated that he stuck stuck to being on the card um, and that he's fought many of the guys that he has fought. He's really never said no a lot. And when you do that in Dana White's eyes, that, that gain, garners a lot of momentum for you, get, gets you a lot of points on the good side for him. And uh, that's a tough thing to do. So they said they were going to try to get him a fight that he would enjoy. Um, so you could do you could do something like Kumar Usman. I, I wouldn't be totally against that. Uh, that would be a good fight to come to fruition. But, um, but also that depends on what you're going to do with the main event, guys, which was Darren Till and Steven Thompson next. So let's get right into that. Let's... I know that's what everyone really was focused on from this past week, was whether or not this was actually a good decision. Did you think Darren Till won, Stephen Thompson won? So let's just get right into it. I'll, I'll just say it right off the bat. Not a great main event, of course. It was one of those main events that was a little bit lackluster because two guys were so high level in the same areas that they kind of canceled each other out. That happens a lot of times when two guys of such high expertise in the same um, in the same MMA realm get together when that happens a lot of times it be, it can become boring and, and especially when you have Stephen Wonderboy Thompson who is a pure counter striker it feels like he doesn't really attack a lot he does some blitzes here and there very similar to Leota Machida they both have different styles of what they do but for the most part they fight in similar ways um you see with both guys, and even Anderson Silva back in the day, all three guys mainly counter-strikers. Counter they blitz a little bit here and there. They take, the they take it within their own hands to be aggressive every once in a while, but for the most part, they're going to be backing up or waiting for you to come in, and then they're looking to, for that opening so that they can land that fight-ending strike, of course. Um, and with that comes some boring fights. You know, Anderson Silva versus Damian Maia versus Tali Slates versus... Uh, I think Patrick Cote, some of these other guys, you know, they were a little bit boring. Steven Thompson has had some boring fights against Tyron Woodley twice. He's had, 
you know, an okay fight with Jorge Masvidal, and then Lyoto Machida, on the other hand, has had a number of fights that have been outstanding, just like the Vitor Belfort one that ended in spectacular fashion with the kick up the middle, um, but he's had a lot of fights that have become a little bo bit boring as well. One that comes to mind, I believe, is a Dan Henderson fight that they had back in the day. And with that comes a lot of close split decision wins or uh, controversial decisions. And then it goes, well, he wasn't the aggressor, things of that nature. That's kind of what happened here. Darren Till was on a totally different, is on a much better level than some of the other strikers that Stephen Thompson has faced in his past. So Darren Till, instead of be, being overly aggressive, was very understanding that that's what Stephen Wonderboy Thompson wanted. He understood that he would have to come forward and uh, land his shots and be more of the aggressor, but also understood that he didn't need to rush anything, that he needed to pick his shots very carefully, and that he just needed to outstrike him a little bit more and put a little bit more emphasis on his strikes than Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. I think that that's what he accomplished in this fight. I know many people thought Stephen Wonderboy Thompson won the majority, I would say, thought and scored it for Thompson. I actually scored it for Darren Till. I thought that Thompson won the first and the fourth rounds. I thought that the second round and the third round went to Darren Till. I thought they were very close nonetheless, but I just thought that Darren Till outstruck Stephen Wonderboy Thompson in that second round just a little bit. Neither landed anything real significant in that round. So for me, I have to go with who I thought landed more. And for in my opinion, that was Darren Till in the second round. In the third round, I went with Darren Till because, again, I... It looked like to me that he had outstruck Thompson by just a little bit, a few more numbers. They both landed their, some of their best power shots in that round as opposed to the rest of the rounds other than in that fifth round when Darren Till landed the one huge, uh, huge punch in that round that knocked Stephen Thompson down. But other than that, I would say that this was the most significant round as far as significant strikes, power strikes that were actually landed, but I thought Darren Till did a little bit more with that. And then obviously in that fifth, it's pretty easy to say that Darren Till won that round. I think that he outstruck Stephen Wonderboy Thompson more in that round than maybe in the others. And also with the knockdown, it was pretty clear to me that he won that fifth round. So I definitely had it going 2-2 into that fifth round. I think the biggest round that's in question is that is round two. You could have given that to Thompson. It was very lackluster with action, so it was very difficult to tell who was getting the better of that round. And with that being said, of course it's not a robbery that Stephen Wonderboy Thompson lost. I know a lot of people were very upset, but I would also like to say that there's been a lot of MMA analysts and, and guys and personalities such as Brendan Schaub, Luke Thomas, Ariel Hawan, you know, all these guys that are very respectable in this game. And, you know, I just feel there's one thing that I keep noticing when there's these very close decisions, which is no one got robbed here. And it's almost like an excuse. And I understand that maybe they're not trying to say that as an excuse, but it brings into question to me, why do we say that so much? So um, let, let me get into that in just a second. But nonetheless, let's just focus on Darren Till and Stephen Thompson first real quick. And to me, I, I did score it for Darren Till. I wouldn't have had a huge issue with St Stephen Thompson getting the victory, but I feel pretty confident that they got this one right. It is unfortunate that Stephen Thompson had to fight a guy who was, what, three and a half pounds over the 
one pound limit that they even give you for a welterweight title bout or for a welterweight bout. Um, they don't give you that one pound allowance in, in title bouts. So he was 174.5. But I will say this, to Darren Till's credit, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson had put some parameters around the fact that he wanted him to be no more than 188 or 188.5. I can't remember. 1 p.m. local time there. Um, and he wanted him no more than that at that point in time. He was able to make that weight, so he did meet the parameters, and I actually really kind of liked that they did that. Um, I think that it's, from a health perspective, it's not the best thing, but from a from a competition perspective where one guy fairly made weight and one guy, you know, for whatever reasons, Darren Till apparently had an emergency, and since then there's been a video that's come out about Darren Till and his nasty weight cut, and it looked terrible, but nonetheless, you still have to make the weight, and if you don't, you consider to have an advantage, even if your body's actually wrecked from a terrible weight cut like it appeared that Darren's was. But nonetheless, I mean, it, it's just professional. It's what you have to do. It makes martial arts. It's um, it's part of the game. It's part of the job. You have to make weight. So for Stephen Wonderboy Thompson to be able to get 30% of Darren Till's purse and win and show money, I believe, was the case. And then for him to also have those parameters set around him as far as you have to do this, this, and that in order to uh, still maintain and be in the fight. I thought that that was good negotiating on his side, on, on Stephen Wonderboy Thompson's side, and um, I'd like to see some of that be implemented going forward. I like when the fighters, you know, kind of use that leverage to help themselves because it's not very fair. I think after this fight card, I think fighters that have missed weight in the UFC this year are now 7-1 and one of you know, winning seven times as opposed to losing once. Um, so it, it definitely shows that there is somewhat of an advantage. Some, it could be the case that it would still be 7-1 and one even if all the people had made weight, but it still shows that there's a there's a price to be paid when you're facing these guys that have missed weight and then you end up losing. You fall down the rankings, maybe your pay gets decreased, so things of that nature. So I think that it was good for Thompson to to ask for that and then for him to get it I thought was a win for fighters going forward because maybe they can implement some of those practices going forward against opponents rather than just being uh, pressured into sticking with the fight just because the UFC wants them to. So um, with that being said, unfortunate loss for Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, but I would say this, I mean, he's not going to fall down too, too far in the rankings. Um, you know, there's still, let me get the updated rankings. He's lost twice. He lost once to Tyron Woodley and drawed once with Tyron Woodley, and then he lost once to Matt Brown back in the day, and now once to Darren Till. But this is a guy in which a lot of people are looking to be the future of this welterweight division, possibly the next big superstar behind Conor McGregor. They view him as having that type of potential. If you look at it, Darren Till moved up all the way to number two, right behind Rafael Dos Anjos, who's at number one, and then Stephen Wonderboy Thompson's at number three. So for Thompson, I'd like to just see him go against someone uh, of lesser lesser rank. Actually, you know you know what I would like to see, actually, because um, I kind of like Kamaru Usman to face Darren Till next. I think that that's the next matchup that I would like to see. You have Colby Covington versus Rafael Dos Anjos fight for the interim title this next weekend. 
whoever wins goes on to face Tyron Woodley to unify the titles. And then I think that you have Darren Till versus uh, Kamaru Usman, and you see as a title eliminator bout, whoever wins that fight gets the winner of Dos Anjos in or gets the winner of whoever Woodley fights. Who Whatever happens in that fight, then they become the number one contender for, for that champion. Um, in the meantime, I'd like to see Neil Magny fight Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. I think that that's a, a good favorable fight for Thompson, but also, also a difficult one and somewhat of a favorable fight for Neil Magny too as far as the attributes that he has, the physical tools that he has. He's very tall, lanky. He's not going to have the the most issues getting into the range of Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. And then with the type of grappling and wrestling that he has, um, maybe he can combat Stephen Thompson's uh, striking prowess with that. And he's he usually has trouble with these guys that are able to have really high-level uh, jiu-jitsu games, but Stephen Wonderboy Thompson doesn't ha have that present with him. So if Dana White wants to do Neil Magny a solid, maybe put him in there against number three, Stephen Thompson, and see if he can get a big win over that, and that could catapult him potentially into the top five. For Darren Till, I'd really, really like to see that Kamaru Usman fight. The reason being is because if he's able to defeat a guy like Kamaru Usman, then you can make a real case for him being able to defeat a guy like Tyron Woodley, because he would have been able to defeat two really high-level respected strikers in the game in Stephen Thompson and Donald Cerrone and then defeat a guy who's very high-level in wrestling, which Tyron Woodley is as well. Woodley has a lot of power, a lot of great res uh, good wrestling techniques as well, so it would be a tough fight for, for Darren Till, but if he's able to get past Usman and those wrestling abilities, then I think that that presents him to be the real deal to be a guy that is very well rounded and it's going to be very difficult to beat and you're going to have to bring a complete game plan with you in order to um, to defeat a guy like Darren Till um, so that's what I would like to see for both of those guys next let's talk about the weight cut a little bit I don't really have too much of an issue with the weight cut. The reason being is because it sounds like from the USC's perspective, from Darren Till's perspective, everyone that I've heard talk about it, that there was some sort of emergency with his with his pregnant girlfriend where he had to go back and forth to the hospital during his weight cut and interrupted his weight cut. But I would say this, I think there was a huge mistake on Darren Till's team side, which was they released a video of his weight cut, and it was absolutely abysmal to watch. It was very dreadful to watch, uh, kind of scary, a little bit tough to watch. And I just think that this was a bad move on their part because I think for the most part, a lot of people had forgiven him. And uh, for the most part, a lot of people would forgive him as long as he made weight going forward. I don't think it would be such a huge issue. I know that that's what they were trying to combat, but I ultimately think it works against him. As I think a member of the, from the ABC already came out and said that his you know team is going to get him killed. So you have regulators already coming out and shedding some light on this uh, subject and very concerned about it and let's say Darren Till wants to fight Tyron Woodley in California you know the commission over there is very strict on weight cutting um, practices and they could see this footage and say you know what we're not going to approve you to fight at welterweight like you have to prove that you can uh, fight at welterweight outside of 
a title fight before we're going to let you do it for a title fight. So they may want him to go up to 185 to suggest that. And other commissions could look, also look at that video and say, I mean, you you didn't even make weight when you looked that badly. What is it going to look like when you do make weight? So um, it could be concerning for them. I, I don't think it was the best move. I think it gives the UFC a little bit of pause also after that video was released to put him right in there in the title fight. Um, unfortunately, he didn't have the type of performance uh, married with the fact that he missed weight with the fact that he put out this video, I think that there was a possibility that he could jump the line even over Dos Anjos and Covington who are fighting for the interim title and fight Tyron Woodley right away. But I think with all of those issues coming to fruition, I just don't believe that that's going to happen. Dana did say he would be fighting in Vegas next. I do think that that should be with Kamaru Usman. But um, I think he's going to have to prove first that he can A, make weight, put on a pretty good performance, and, you know, shine in the bright lights of the states of course in las vegas he would probably be on a pay-per-view main card possibly a co-main event and uh really really shine in that light and then show that he can safely make that 170 pound limit so that the ufc will feel comfortable putting him in there because this is actually the second time he has missed weight a lot of people don't don't even realize that so that is something to consider going forward for darren till um, if he doesn't make it again, you could possibly see him being forced up to that 185 middleweight pound division the same way that Johnny Hendricks and Kelvin Gaslam were whenever they were competing at 170 and, and uh, missed weight multiple times at 170. As far as Darren Till's performance, um, it is what it is, man. I mean, he was very fired up, and I understand why, and he was asking, who doubts me now? Who doubts me now? There's a lot of people that doubt him now still. There's a lot of people after that performance who were not very impressed, but I would say this. I was very impressed from the standpoint of that he's a young 25-year-old who had a lot of issues going into his first main event and still was able to find a way to defeat Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. That's essentially his own game. Stephen Thompson undefeated in his historic kick boxing career so very much um okay with fighting a, a style of fight like that and the fact that he was able to clip him and put him down on his butt and was able to take three rounds to two on all three judges scorecards whether or not it was controversial or not it was close enough to where you could give that fight to him with that being said, I mean, I think that's pretty impressive, the game plan that he put together. I think more than anything, I just learned about his intelligence, that he knew that he wasn't going to be good enough or, or uh, better than Wonderboy Thompson in the sense that he could just go in there and, and uh, run right over him and just be super aggressive, hyper aggressive, not worry about the counters and get his power shot. I think that the way that he fought was the way that he had to fight. He had to pick his shots. I do think that and believe that he could have had a little bit more self-belief and could have been a little bit more aggressive, maybe landed about five or six more strikes per round and possibly uh, gone in with at least two or three more, um, you know, attempts with those powers significant strikes of course um, but nonetheless I thought that he had a really well-rounded game plan he just wasn't able to be look very good against Stephen Wonderboy Thompson which if you have noticed and if you're going to win against Wonderboy in a decision most often it's not going to be a pretty it's it's not going to be a pretty fight it's not going to be a great fight unfortunately that's just the way it goes but nonetheless I think this kid's got a lot of talent he does need to uh, rein it in a little bit but you know, you understand his emotion. He had had a very stressful week, and um, 
I do believe that just being in Liverpool, the crowd was very much behind him. I think that he's a big star in that that UK area right now. I think the American side of the audience is gonna it has cooled off a little bit on him because of the performance, because of the long layoff, because he missed weight. So the, those multiple reasons, and I do understand that. I've cooled off on him a little bit, but I I wouldn't really say that that's super fair because I was a little bit skeptical going into this fight. Didn't think that he was not didn't have the potential to win this fight, but I just thought it might have been a little bit too soon. I think people had their hopes way too high going into this fight. I always thought that if Thompson was going to lose, it was going to be more so looking like this, where Darren Till wasn't looking great but was doing enough, rather than him uh, just overrunning him with power the same way that he did to Donald Cerrone. Um, but let's get into that discussion right, real quick that I wanted to go back to about whether about robberies and why do we say that why do we say that i believe that people were trained to believe that once dana white would say that back in the day it was don't ever let it get to the judges scorecards don't ever let it get to the Georgia scorecards whenever um they would talk about people that were upset with the decisions that were coming down from the judges whenever they would lose and he would go well you got to finish the fights you can't let it get to the judges scorecards once you do that you know it's not in your hands any longer and that is true that is very much true but I think that it's gotten to a point where Dana has used that um, I don't think on purpose as a little bit of a crutch a little bit of an excuse for the judges to be honest I don't think he views it that way he definitely hates bad decisions and he goes out there and rips anyone that does a bad job refing or judging right so this happens all the time but with that phrase comes well yeah but hey you can't leave it to, up to the judges because um, you just never know and while that may be true I do have an issue with people translating that in my opinion to saying well it's essentially the same thing as saying, well, it wasn't a robbery, so what can you do? Oh, well. Um, I just think that I understand every time that this thing happens, we can't go crazy over the judges. And we can't just, I mean, it gets, it, it just gets overbearing at points because it feels like it's never going to change. And it hasn't changed for a long time. But I'm tired of hearing the excuse, well, this wasn't a robbery, so uh, what are you going to do? The thing is, is that that's fine, it wasn't a robbery, and I will agree with that. I will say that, I'll admit to that. But, especially because I thought Darren Till won, but let's say that Stephen Thompson, in my opinion, had won three out of the five rounds. I wouldn't be okay with people saying, well, you know, it wasn't a robbery, dude. I would be like, no, there's got to be a better answer than you know, it wasn't a robbery. That That's not acceptable to me anymore. The reason why is because why do we pay these judges to get the decisions correct? The same as we do in the NBA, in the NFL, whenever they're calling penalties or fouls, right? And we scrutinize those guys so harshly. We don't just go, oh, um, LeBron, you took that, you, you, that was a blocking foul, not a charge. Uh, well, Oh, well, you shouldn't have left it up to the refs. No one says that. No one says that. Like, why? people don't say that. I mean, they say, well, there was other chances for them to win the game. That's true, but no one's going out there and being like, oh, well, you know, when a ref blows a call in the NFL or the NBA, they do have a little bit of the sense of, well, you had other opportunities in the game to win, 
but a lot of times those guys get super scrutinized. The NBA has to come out with reports to say that, you know, this is what we did wrong and whatnot and, and have this transparency, and I'm glad that they do. But why don't we do that in MMA? I mean, we shouldn't accept, oh, well, it wasn't a robbery. These, these fights are so close sometimes. It is imperative that we have guys that are... Um, that are there that can make those decisions and can actually tell by with the small details who is actually winning the fight even if it's razor thin um, as far as who who's winning that fight or that round right and with that being said I just think that you know in other sports and I know it's hard to compare other sports sometimes but in other sports guys win or teams win by one point all the time it happens all the time. It's just, a, they were just a tiny bit better in this one area at this one point in this particular moment. That happens all the time. So that's why we have Game 7s in the NBA. That's why in the NFL, there's so much parity. Is because it's like, the NFL, it's just, these professional athletes are just that much better here on this week or in this season than the other team was but it was very very close and there's a definitive way to score that and to see that and I understand that that that's one of the issues that we have in mixed martial arts we don't have the type of scoring system that allows for you to um, understand a hundred percent that team won fairly even if it was by one point but nonetheless when you have these split decisions it's almost like whoever won one by one point and that is it becomes very vital to me and imperative and important that these judges and officials know what they're looking at they have to be able to come into um, get on the ringside and be and say to themselves I know exactly what I'm looking for I know exactly how to score this and I know what criteria um, is expected of me and expected of the fighters and how that all gets rolled up into in at the end of the night into a good decision and I don't think that that happens as often as it should and I just think that the excuse of robbery is just that it's just an excuse I wanted to see the correct decisions made every single time whether it's a boring fight an action-packed fight a close fight not a close fight even in the fights that are are not very close but then one judge scores it one round for uh, the other opponent, but it's still a unanimous decision victory for for the winner. I even have a problem with that. I'm going, why why did that happen? How did he see something different than what the rest of America or the rest of the MMA audience saw? It just doesn't compute in my head. I think it's excuses that are made for the judges. Unfortunately, I don't think that people are meaning to. But I think we should hold them to a higher standard and be like, I don't, there are, there's no such thing as not a robbery. Like, in my opinion, if someone, A, Carlos Condit lost his fight to Robbie Lawler. And everyone said, well, that was not a robbery. Well, if 70% of the MMA community believes that Carlos Condit defeated Robbie Lawler, but that 70, same 70%, uh, but the 100% of the MMA community agrees that it's not a robbery and 
that suddenly makes it okay that Carlos Condit lost? I don't think that that makes sense. A lot of people think Carlos Condit won that fight back in the day against Robbie Lawler, and he would have become the undisputed welterweight champion, something that he hasn't accomplished. He was an interim welterweight champion. Now, that's a big difference, a big accomplishment in his career that did not happen because the judges were not competent enough on that night to make the correct decision. I don't want to hear anymore going forward, well, it's not a robbery. Fine, bro. That's fine. It, it, if it's not a robbery, I understand that. But all that means to me is that it was a close fight. It doesn't mean that that person should have lost because it wasn't a robbery. Even if it's razor, razor thin close and it's boring and it's one of the worst fights you've ever seen, the winner still deserves to be the winner no matter, no matter what. And if you can't get that right, you should not be judging. And we should stop using this word robber, like robbery as of, oh, well, it will, at least it wasn't a robbery. That That's just not acceptable to me any, anymore. All right, so going forward, let's get into the fight that took place last night. Jimmy Rivera versus Marlon Marais. I was actually very much more excited for this fight as opposed to the Stephen Wonderboy Thompson and Darren Till fight. Unfortunately, it looked like the crowd did not show up very well in Utica. I understand why there wasn't a whole lot on this card that got a lot of people excited. Um, let's see here. Sajara Eubanks was... Let's see. Let's take a look at Sherdog. While I'm looking that up, let me know what y'all think about that. At Zapata MMA on Twitter, uh, you know, about the term robbery and you know, maybe I just, I don't know, I, I'm just pretty frustrated at this point with um, with the fact that some of these close fights, even though that they're not robberies, that the wrong person wins. And I don't think that that's what happened last week, but I, I think at a certain point we have to look at ourselves and start saying, well, what are we expecting from ourselves, of course, as well, when we are looking, what are we expecting from the judges, rather, um, you know, when we go into these really close decisions, I, I, I think people think that, well, these, for judges to get it right whenever it's obvious is, you know, is tough enough, so we'll just accept that it may not happen every time the right way whenever they, um, have close decision victories, close decisions to, uh, decide about, but nonetheless, I mean, just let me know at Zapata MMA Twitter what your thoughts are on that. But all right, so last night, um, Jose Torres defeated Jared Brooks by KO Slam. Very strange, strange uh, end to the fight. Jared Brooks was actually picking Jose Torres up to slam him himself. It looked like they kind of twisted in the air a little bit. Then he landed on Jose Torres when they slammed down, but his head ended up hitting the mat, so he kind of like knocked himself out. Then Jose Torres got on top to uh, finish the fight, of course, so that was a very strange, strange ending to that fight, um, and not really sure how, we're going to have to see Jose Torres again, he was one of the prospects coming into this fight, uh, fight card, so we'll have to see him next time to see what he can provide, Nathaniel Wood defeating Johnny Eduardo by submission, by uh, Bravo Choke, and he got that victory, I wasn't able to watch that, but I know 
bunch of people were paying attention to those two fights because those were the two biggest prospects on this card. So, But a nice solid win for Nathaniel Wood in his debut in the UFC over Johnny Eduardo. So good win there. Desmond Green defeating Glayson Tebow. Bilal Muhammad looking pretty good against Ranch uh, Chance Rencounter. Um he won by unanimous decision. I think Bilal Muhammad, a guy who has won, I believe, four straight straight fights at this point in that welterweight division, a little bit undersized. Uh, yes, four straight since losing to Vicente Luque. He's had losses to Vicente Luque, Alan Joban, guys of that nature, but overall is 5-2 and two in the UFC, so putting together a pretty nice resume. Had defeated Tim Means, Jordan Mean, and... Uh, Randy Brown before him, before last night, so I think he's got a nice, good momentum going here. Still 29 years old. Uh, again, a little bit undersized for the division, but uh, very impressed with him. I think that he was really looking to put a stamp on that performance by ending the fight with a knockout, but he just wasn't able to get it. You could tell he was a little frustrated at the end of the fight, and I would have liked to have seen that too, to really tell us that he's ready to make a, that next jump in that welterweight division, but I'd like to see him get a better name than a guy like Chance Rencounter, of course. I'd like to see uh, what type of matchup they can come up with him next, because that's a very interesting price. I believe, or uh, fight, I believe he was supposed to be fighting Nico Price on this card, but he dropped out of the, the card, so wasn't able to make it happen, but I think that would have told us a lot more about Muhammad, but another payday, another win for Muhammad, so good for him uh, going forward. Let's see what comes out of that guy, because he, he's got some real good striking potential and pretty good takedown defense as well. David Tamor defeating Nick Lentz by unanimous decision. I caught about the last round and a half of this fight. Uh, pretty pretty good performance by Tamor. I mean, just being a little bit surgical with the way that he was striking was really defending the takedowns very nicely. Once Nick Lentz got him in bad position, he was able to get Lentz off of him and not really turn into a grappling fest, of course, by any means. Now, he did have a couple cage grabs that Jimmy Smith uh, made note of, so we'll have to see how that goes going forward. Maybe did that prevent Nick Lentz from getting any dominant positions? If it did, that's that is unfortunate as well. But David Tamor is a very, very talented guy. He defeated Lando Venado a few fights ago. Very good with his striking. Interesting guy in, the, in this lightweight division. The, the lightweight division is super stacked right now. But I would like to see David Tamor get guy um, maybe in that top 15 range. I mean, I think that he's very underrated and, and not a lot of people know about him. He didn't really put on the fireworks the way I thought he he could last night against a tough opponent in Nick Lentz, but nonetheless got a very good win over a very, very tough veteran, a very smart fighter in Nick Lentz as well. Sajar Eubanks defeating Lauren Murphy by unanimous decision. Sam Alvey defeating John Vellante by split decision. Julio Arce defeating Daniel Tamor. Ben Saunders, and uh, I w wasn't able to catch this one either, but wins with a knee to the body. Uh, over Jake Ellenberger in that first round. Unfortunate for Ellenberger, it looks like this could be the chopping block moment for him. He hasn't been very successful in his past few fights, of course, and uh, late in his career, it just has not come together. If uh, you take a look at, at his resume over the past few years, it's a tough one. I mean, he 
has lost three straight fights to Ben Saunders, Mike Perry, and Poirier Masvidal. Before that, he was able to get a win over Matt Brown, lost to Tarek Safadine, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. Before that, had a win over Josh Koscheck, but then another three-fight losing streak before that in Kelvin Gaslam, Robbie Lawler, and Rory McDonald. So if you add all that up, let's see where that leaves him. That leaves um, two and eight in his last ten fights, so that's an abysmal record. This was a guy who was highly talent, was really talented early in his career, looked like a, a title, a real title contender. But um, you know, just later in his career, I think that the evolution of MMA passed him by. I think he was kind of one generation too late when it came to MMA. If he had fought at the same time that Matt, that George St. Pierre was coming up and all those guys were coming up, I think that he would have been a lot more successful, but I think that he was kind of towards the end of that phase of mixed martial arts and then entered this new phase in which you have to be so much well more well-rounded than he is. So unfortunate loss for him. He's uh, been stopped quite a bit in, lately in his career, so you have to wonder. He's probably going to get cut, but also you have to wonder, is it time to retire for a guy like that who is just obvious that he's not improving at all. Walt Harris defeating Daniel Spitz by KO in that second round, landed some major power in that second round, then followed up with the, some nice ground and pound. So good win there for Walt Harris, another one of these heavyweights that I feel like has a lot more potential than what he's showing, but he still hasn't put it all together, and he hasn't looked ultra-impressive. So let's see what's next for him. This next matchup, Gregor Gillespie versus Vince Pichel, he wins by submission, arm triangle choke, absolutely outstanding by Gregor Gillespie. This guy is a dog. I mean, this this guy is just fantastic. He went in there, was ready to grapple from the moment that the that the uh, bell rang, of course, and Vince Pichel just had no answers for him. He just continued to chain wrestle, continued, continued, continued. Pichel did a good job here and there, um, you know, defending the takedowns, but Gregor Gillespie just... Um, very determined to get that takedown, and he was able to get so very successfully. He's now one, two, three, four, five, and O in the UFC. He only has one decision, which came in his debut. He also has two KO, TKO, KO combinations, and then a two submissions by both by arm triangle choke. This guy is someone to watch for sure. Twelve and O in that lightweight division. Super stacked. I believe they said he may be 31, I want to say. I saw on his Wikipedia page, but he is a little bit older in that lightweight division, so I'd like to see him get going right now. Let's see him get in there with a top 15 guy. I think he's definitely ready for it. Um, he is going to be tough, tough guy for people to fight. I think John Anik said it right. If Or was it John Anik or Jimmy? So one of those two guys said it right. If you are an agent of a 155-pound fighter, you are not going to be wanting to accept a fight against Gregor Gillespie. Part of the reason because he does not have a huge name. He's a little bit... Um, he doesn't like calling people out. He said that in his uh, interview last night. So he doesn't really have that hype behind him the same way that some of these guys who talk a lot like Colby Covington uh, do. But this guy is an absolute nightmare to, f to fight. I mean, he just goes after single leg after single leg, gets you up against the cage. will go go left, go right, do whatever he's got to do, up and down. Um, and then he just gets on top of you. He starts landing his ground and pound, starts transitioning. 
into you know mount side control setting up submissions very quickly this guy is very very dominant at what he does he hasn't fought the elite of the elite yet in the UFC but I think he would do very well against that top 15 range um, so let's see him in there because I do believe that this is a guy who potentially has the ability to be an elite elite lightweight I mean, he looked, <laughs> last night, I'm not saying he is Habib, but he looked Habib-like in the way that he was just, um, he just never had, was never going to give up on those takedowns and, and was just always going to get there. And he did look a little bit tired when the fight ended, but nowhere near the same uh, exhaustion that many others would face when you do implement that type of game plan. It looked like he could have gone for the next three rounds and implemented that same strategy. Maybe started slowing down like a fourth round, but that third round would be tough. The early fourth, that would be tough. Maybe you finally get him into the fifth and he hasn't put you away, or if he hasn't exhausted you yourself then uh, maybe you could take advantage, but this is going to be a tough guy to beat in three-round fights, of course. So very impressed with him. That's a name to look forward to, Gregor Gillespie, of course. Um, we all knew that uh, that coming into into the night, but that was just very, very impressive once again. Let's get to that main event, Marlon Marias versus Jimmy Rivera. Wow, what do you say about that one? That was fantastic. I had Marlon Marais winning this fight going into it, and I'm not always right on these things, of course. I had Stephen Thompson defeating Darren Till in the fourth, by fourth round uh, TKO, and that did not come to fruition, of course. Um, but I did feel comfortable in picking Marlon Marais in this fight. He was ranked number five coming into the night. Jimmy Rivera ranked number four coming into the night. A lot of people very high on Jimmy Rivera, but... I've been a fan for a long, long time with Marlon Marais since his WSOF days. This guy has been on an absolute tear in his career. He had, like, not that great a record when he first made his debut in WSOF. But from December 2nd of 2011 all the way to December 31st of 2016, he had not lost a fight. Uh, that is a large time range right there. That's 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 fight winning streak coming into the UFC. He unfortunately lost a split decision against Rafael Sunsau, a very, very difficult fighter in that 135 bantamweight division and a guy who never makes it look pretty win or lose for himself. And I actually thought Marais won that fight. But nonetheless, the Sun Chow, an excellent elite fighter in that 135-pound division. I mean, right now, he's ranked number three in the world. So that's how high-level that guy, that's what a bit, that was a huge task for him to come into for his first fight. But then he defeats John Dodson by a split decision. Another guy who's been a title contender at the 125-pound division twice and has been in top 10, top 15 in the bantamweight division for quite some time now. Then defeats Aljamain Sterling by KO knee. It was a kick that he was meaning to throw, but Aljamain was going in for a uh, takedown attempt, and then he landed that knee on him. So uh, that was a super impressive win. But this is definitely the most impressive. He ups that. F he ups the ante. He defeated Aljamain Sterling in a minute and seven seconds. He defeats Jimmy Rivera, the number four guy, a guy who many thought was going to be the next title contender in that one in that stacked 135 pound division, and defeats him by KO head kick and uh, follow up punches in 33 seconds into the first round. 
that is crazy. 33 seconds. So what I thought going into this fight was that if Rivera was able to land a knockout blow in that first round, I thought that was his best shot because he's most explosive and quickest with his hands in that first round. He does a pretty good job of countering when guys come in on him. And um, so he does a good job of sitting back. And then he does land some nice little leg kicks as well. But what I saw on the other end was that Marlon Marais was going to be able to win this fight because I thought that he would have a better gas tank going later into the rounds instead of championship rounds. This wasn't a championship fight, but it was a five-rounder. With that being said, since Marlon was the WSOF champ for so long, he had fought a few of those fights and is used to that championship round feel, of course. So I thought that his, his uh, conditioning was going to be better than Rivera's. I had also noticed that in the Thomas Almeida fight, it felt like Jimmy Rivera started to slow down a little bit towards the end of the second and definitely slow down a little bit in that third round. It's not super significant, but it's significant enough that if you have another guy who's got better cardio than you, especially with a fourth and fifth round, then that would be tough to deal with. And also, Marlon Marais lands a very good leg kicks, uh, low leg kicks as well. And Jimmy Rivera doesn't always check him very well. So immediately, Marais actually landed one of those leg, low leg kicks. And I think that that got into the head of um, of Jimmy Rivera because when he goes to kick again, he starts to drop his hand, and that creates the opening for Marais to hit the head. And that's exactly where his target was. He gets him right on the temple, and uh, Jimmy Rivera goes down very quickly. Marais gets right onto his back. Um, switches around and then starts to hit him with some punches and you see Rivera with his hand stretched out and his belly down he looks like he's going to gain his composure turn around but and you see his arms moving but I think the second or third punch that Marlon landed while they were on the ground you see his hands go whoop, they could just go limp there was nothing there from him for a split second and the ref also noticed that so he knew he went out so that, that's when they stopped the fight ultra impressive by Marlon Marais to see that happen that you know Rivera's had a long long winning streak of his own right let's see here I believe 20 wins in a row beating the likes of Uriah Faber a legend like that another high quality opponent in Thomas Almeida but a I did not think that he had fought the type of competition as of just yet to prove that he was the elite of that division because Thomas Almeida has had a few setbacks Uriah Faber on the other hand you know, was later into his career, retired, I believe, after, uh, one fight after that, I believe. Uh, Marais has fought some really high-level competition, even in his short time in the UFC, and he has that championship pedigree. I thought that he also was going to have the advantage in the tool set that he had. He could land spinning back fists, spinning kicks, um, you know, switch kicks, just like the one that he ended the fight with last night. He could go to the you know, use his kicks to go to the body, to go to the legs as well, chop down those. And then his his boxing is getting steadily improving with Mark Henry and the team over there as well. He's he's a very difficult guy to take down. This is a guy I absolutely need to see fight for the title soon. Um, they are doing TJ Dillashaw versus Cody Garbrandt. The only way I see that being a trilogy is A, if Cody wins, and uh, it's a very, very close fight. Um, I could see that being a trilogy, and if Dominic Cruz is healthy in time to face the winner of Dillashaw Garbrandt, then I could see Marais having to wait in the wings, but if they do a trilogy, I want to see 
Marais versus Dominic Cruz to the determine to determine the number one contender, and uh, that's a very tough fight for both opponents. A very intriguing fight, but one that I would absolutely love to see. One in which I would definitely not count out Marlon Marais. I, I don't know who I would favor in that fight right now because there's so many variables that go into this bantamweight division. So I would have to study the tape on it first to uh, come to some sort of conclusion. But also, if TJ Dillashaw wins or Garbrandt wins and they're ready for Marais to fight right away, I'd be okay with that as well for him getting that title shot. I mean, after super ultra-impressive victories over Aljamain Sterling and um, as well as an ultra-impressive victory over Jimmy Rivera, who was ranked number four in the world. So I definitely think that he is ready for a championship-level title shot. So I think that he either fights one more, and if he wins, then he gets that title shot, or you just give it to him right away, depending on the decision between Dillashaw and Garbrandt. That's what I would do with him next. For Jimmy Rivera, a tough loss for him. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to show much in this fight, but you could definitely put him in there against a guy like John Lineker. I think that that would be an interesting fight and a very interesting matchup, and if he wanted to get right back up in the, into the rankings uh, very quickly, I think that that would be a good fight. Uh, you could also do him versus Aljamain Sterling, two guys that are... Um, in interesting spots in that division. I think I would like to see that fight as well. So either of those, and I would be okay with it. For Marais going forward, let's see him against Dominic Cruz or the winner of that TJ Dillashaw versus Garbrandt. But, um, you know, if he does fight Dominic, that being um, definitely for the number one contender spot. I would love, love, love to see that. So fantastic win there, fantastic performance there for Marlon. Um going to be interesting to see what they do with him next, but he definitely was vying for that title shot as well. Alright, so let me know what y'all think about that card and what the result, how the results came down with that and if you were surprised with how, how the main event went. Um, definitely exciting to see that finish. A uh, little bit sad that it was that that short of a fight, but nonetheless it was an excellent fight and a, an excellent performance in, performance from Marlon Marais. Alright, so um, let's move on to Yair Rodriguez and Michael Bisping. Let's go with the Michael Bisping um, with the Michael Bisping news first. And uh, So let's get into that. So Michael Bisping, the original uh, bad guy from the UK, from England, um, the first big superstar that came out of England, the first title contender, he won the Ultimate Fighter 3 back in the day, and re that really propelled him into a little bit of stardom and, and uh, recognition. Uh, excellent career for Michael Bisping, finally called it a day. I was listening to his the eight-minute clip they had on his podcast on MMAfighting.com, and um, he was talking about the fact that his his good eye was actually starting to flash when it became dark, whenever he was like in dark places. So if you turn off the lights, his uh, good eye was actually starting to flash. And if you don't know about him, he has a, the other eye is really bad at this point. I believe he's got a, a like a slightly torn retina or something like that. Um, so the fact that he was starting to have issues with his other eye following his last loss in which he got knocked out by Kelman Gaslam, that started to give that started to give him pause and so he really had to consider his health and his vision at that point it did appear that he said that there were some negotiations for a farewell fight with uh, Rashad Evans 
uh, that would have taken place May 17th at UFC London, it, but it never cr came to fruition, and then he said that he was watching a movie that uh, kind of inspired him to, I don't remember what the movie was, but he kind of was like, you know what, like, it, it, it's all good, I'm done, you know, like, uh, this movie's inspired me to just say, you know what, I'm good to go, and I think it's a good decision by Michael Bisping, I mean, he was having some real eye issues after that Vitor Belfort loss, and now the fact that he's having issues with his other eyes, I believe that those were cases in which I had heard uh, according to Joe Rogan, that he wasn't going to be able to get those eyes fixed until after until after his fighting career is done because once you get them fixed, you can't really get hit in the head that much or hit in the eye um, because it would just reverse whatever they did good to it. Um, so with that being said, hopefully he'll go and get that taken care of and that way he can live his life uh, very healthily going forward, especially considering he's got a pretty good movie career going on right now. He does very well as a Fox analyst uh, at the desk, and I hope that ESPN utilizes him because he's excellent. He's got a great personality. I wouldn't like to see him do commentating on the UFC, on the fights themselves, but I think doing that analyst and desk work for the UFC and for like potentially ESPN here coming up soon, I think that that would be a perfect fit for him. I think this is a personality you don't want to lose because um, he just has meant so much to uh, the UK and England as a whole, as well to just the UFC in general. I mean, this was a guy who was uh, fantastic, was never, was always willing to say yes to a fight. He finished with a 30-9 and record, and then that also include, included uh, the following records, which was most wins in UFC history, the most fights in UFC history, the most significant strikes landed in UFC history, and the second most total fight time in UFC history. So this guy has had a long, long, uh, hard career too. Don't underestimate how hard his career has been. He had a lot of ebbs and flows during his career. Uh, Michael Bisping, to me, will be remembered for just being the type of guy that would take a loss and just move forward, pick himself back up, get back onto the um, the bike, so to speak, and just keep going. And every time he fell off that bike, he got back on and said, it's all good. I, I know where I'm going. I know where I'm going to end up and, and um, where I've got to be, and I'll find a way to get there. And he had the he had ultra self-belief in himself, and that was what was really impressive with Michael Bisping. Um, if you go down his list of fights, he comes into the UFC with a four-fight winning streak after uh, including the Ultimate Fighter 3 finale. Then his he has a loss to Rashad Evans by split decision, which I believe sent him down to the welter, the middleweight division because at that time I believe he was still fighting at light heavyweight, and so it just didn't appear that that was a correct division for him, and I think that that paid off. He followed it up with a three-fight winning streak, including a win over Chris Levin by unanimous decision, and that put him into um, his his big, big-time fight with Dan Henderson, which they were both coaches at Ultimate Fighter. It was the U.S. versus the U.K., um, and then that was where one of the first... Uh, roadblocks occurred for Michael Bisping. I mean, the huge, huge one. He had lost by a vicious KO. He, Dan Henderson landed that um, that left hand, that bomb over him, I believe, and had knocked him out clean. And he was he was stiff in the air as he was falling. And once he fell, Dan Henderson goes diving in 
with a huge left hand, I believe, and hits him flush on the button as well, and just bounces his head off the canvas. It was a devastating KO, one that most people haven't seen, uh, one that is kind of hard to watch if you think about it sometimes. Um, some people would be uncomfortable watching that, especially with that follow-up punch. And uh, I think Luke Thomas said it best. I mean, this is a guy who came back after that loss and, and just kept going. A lot of people who suffer um, a KO like that are never the same. They are never the same, especially because this was a guy at this point in time who was looked upon as being a very hated mixed martial artist at the time. He talked a lot of crap. He um, knew how to get the fans going, how to get his opponents riled up, things of that nature. He wasn't afraid to speak his mind. He would say controversial stuff or do things to get people irritated. And so with that being said, I mean, and it was on UFC 100 after the Ultimate Fighter. They had gotten off of their coaching and uh, that was back when the Ultimate Fighter was still doing huge, huge ratings. And UFC at 100 before Connor and Ronda came along was had been the highest bought pay-per-view of all time in the UFC. So, and that was a very well-hyped fight as well. So, with that being the case, I mean, for for him to come back from that fight and continue to have the type of career that he had says everything about him that you need to know because a lot of people would have just kind of gone away slowly. Maybe they would have had a few more fights in the UFC. They probably would have lost and started down themselves and really gotten sad, but that's not the way that Michael Bisping was. He was a guy that persevered unlike anyone else that I have seen in the UFC before. So he then goes on to get a win in uh, by TKO over Dennis Kang, so he rebounded from that, but then proceeded to lose against Vanderlei Silva. Um, so at that point, when it was two out of three losses, it was kind of like, yeah, you know, this was a guy that we thought could be England's first champion, but just doesn't appear to be like he... to. It doesn't appear that he's going to ever get there, but then he followed it up with a four-fight winning streak with wins over Dan Miller, uh, Yoshihiro Akiyama, Jorge Rivera, and what was a very, uh, that was a very tense fight between him and Jorge Rivera, and then a win against Jason Mayhem Miller. He then lost a controversial decision against Chel Sonnen, which I thought he actually won that fight, so that was, he got a little bit screwed there, but then defeated, bounced back, uh, won against Brian Stan, but then ran into a TRT Vitor Belfort, um, and what that stands for, testosterone replacement therapy. To, uh, v Vitor Belfort, this was at the height that he was abusing TRT, it appeared, and maybe some other stories, possibly. He got uh, head kicked by Vitor really, really bad, and that's when he first injured his eye. He followed that up with an Alan Belcher win, lost to Tim Kennedy, defeated Kung Lee by TKO, but then lost to Luke Rockhold by submission after having gotten a knocked down I think once in that fight so at this point in the career we it was kind of thought of as yeah this is you know maybe the greatest middleweight or greatest fighter in UFC history to never even get a title shot as Ariel Hawani said uh, said and I never really even thought about it that way but he was at least up there in the contention for you know who who was the greatest fighter to never win a title and you know you have your Kenny Florians out there you maybe uh, guys like Diego Sanchez other guys of that nature right Nate Nick Diaz people of that elk but it really felt bad for Michael Bisping because he was just a guy that kept coming back and just um 
he kept having that ultra self-belief in himself, and you just felt like, yeah, he's just not gonna get there, and that was after, that Luke Rockhold loss really made you feel like, okay, he's getting older, and, um, you know, how much longer is he gonna be able to do this for? He just lost, uh, against Luke Rockhold, who's probably the future of the division, so if he lost against Rockhold, he's probably going to lose against guys like Weidman, Ronaldo Jacare Sousa, and guys of that nature, even Yoel Romero, but then he follows this up with a with uh, two wins over C.B. Dalloway at the Halley Slates, and he finally gets this fight against Anderson Silva, and not only does he get that fight, but he gets that fight in the U.K., so back in his backyard, and he has the opportunity of a lifetime. This is something that he had always wanted. Now, Anderson Silva at this point was already on the downturn of his career a little bit, but you still felt like Anderson was the favorite going into that fight. And also, this was a guy that Michael Bisping had been looking to fight for so many years. So this was 2016. Michael Bisping entered the UFC in 2006. So he had waited 10 years for this fight. And that whole time, most of that time Anderson Silva had reigned over the division so this was a guy that he was looking to fight for his entire career and now this moment finally came now he didn't get a title shot with it because Anderson had already lost it but at this point it was kind of like you know if he beats Anderson Silva in the UK that could solidify his legacy um, to at least make him one of the best fighters that never won a title never even fought for a title and you know obviously one of the best in the U in UK's history and in England's history, of course, and a pioneer, like what a great career, and that would at least solidify his Hall of Fame resume, right? So he goes in there, and I want you all to take a listen to two interviews, and I'll tell you one right now. Ariel Hawani and Michael Bisping, when they do their walk in England the week of the fight, and he's talking about how he has to beat Anderson Silva, and you kind of felt a little bit bad because you were like, I don't know if he can do it, and he goes, I know that I have to beat Anderson Silva, that I'm making my last title run, that I'm coming to the end of my career, and you just felt like, oh man, like, I just don't think he's going to do it because he had come up so short so many times beforehand when he had put himself in that title contention picture and you're going well you know if he wins this one he could probably get the title shot and it just felt like he was never going to get there and you felt like that was what was going to happen again well he comes out in that first round knocks at Anderson Silva down at the end of the first round I believe wins that first round wins the second round I believe and then it goes on to uh, going to that third round, he's looking pretty good, and then he seemed to get poked in the eye, got distracted, and for a veteran, um, big mistake, turns to the ref, who was Herb Dean, in his home country, in his backyard, he's winning this fight two rounds to none, doing not too bad in that third round, and then all of a sudden, he takes his eye off of Anderson, and Anderson lands a monster flying knee to the chin, folds him so quickly, looked like he was completely out, and he was just conscious enough that when the bell rang after Anderson had hit him with the knee, um, the, the ref did not call the fight. The reason being is because the bell rang and he was just conscious enough, barely. But if you were watching that fight live, you would have thought that he had lost the fight and Anderson had just won because Anderson starts celebrating, he's on the cage, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, he just got knocked out. But 
thankfully for Michael Bisping, uh, Herb Dean made the right call. He uh, the the knee hits, he folds, but he's still barely conscious. Anderson hadn't followed up because the bell rang, and they still continued to let him fight. So, to me, the fourth round the was the um, was everything what you saw in the fourth round was basically his career in a nutshell in my opinion because he had gotten absolutely crushed in that third round just essentially KO'd essentially KO'd if it hadn't been for the bell he that fight would have been called off no doubt there's no doubt about it and what happened he gets back up he gets one minute of rest he comes back out he moves forward hands up Bites down on his mouthpiece, continues to put the pressure on Anderson, and actually has, in my opinion, the most successful round in that fourth round. Wins that round. I believe he lost the fifth round, but he won that fourth round, which won him the fight and uh, gave him the win over Anderson Silva. And that was absolutely remarkable because it was like, how is this guy going to get back up from just being knocked um, almost unconscious the way that he was and when that you know the fourth or fifth round or he even survived the fight Anderson's for sure gonna put him away and that's how you would feel about uh, a lot of his losses against Dan Henderson he got absolutely crushed but came back to to uh, win against Dennis Kang v- Vanderlei Silva came back Vitor Belfort came back every single time this guy was knocked down he would get back up and just keep going and just keep uh, driving right so that's exactly what happened in that Anderson Silva fight. He gets the win over Anderson Silva, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, he beat Anderson Silva. He's never going to get that title, but at least he beat Anderson Silva. What a, what a resume he has with all the records that he had accumulated at that point, That some of them that he holds right now as he's retired. And then the unthinkable happens. Chris Weidman pulls out, which that's not unthinkable because it has happened before, but Lou Caracol needs a replacement. They go to Jacare Souza first, and Jacare def- declines the fight on two weeks' notice. Then they go to Michael Bisping, who is on a TV set, I believe, in Montreal, had not been in training camp, had been seen drinking uh, you know, beer and elsewhere in Canada things of that nature, right, and it's like, this guy's just living life, he's just having a good time, you know, trying to make money on the side, not training for a fight, and on two weeks notice, he finally gets the call, after 10 years of waiting, after 10 years of grinding, he finally gets the call that, hey buddy, you've got the opportunity to fight for a title, but it's not the perfect circumstances, it's on two weeks notice, and what does he do, he takes that fight, um, this is the second interview I want you to watch. The week of that fight, he goes on to the MMA Hour show and, um, and talks to Ariel Hawani about his opportunity to fight for to fight Luke Rockhold for the middleweight championship. And he gets absolutely fired up. He has this unbelievable self-belief, which is foreign to everybody else because we all think you know, he's going to get crushed the same way that he did in that first fight against Luke Rockhold. Rockhold's clearly better. Michael Bisping clearly just almost got knocked out by Anderson Silva, who's clearly past his prime right now, and he's not on the level of these guys. Rockhold was super hyper-confident, but uh, Bisping, go listen to that. It's very awe-inspiring, and it's very, uh, it just, 
is the epitome of his self-belief. That that interview just shows you how much you can believe one can believe in themselves, and how they he just never stopped thinking and believing that he would be the champ one day. And what happens? He goes in there and he knocks out Luke Rockhold in one round in fantastic fashion. No one gave him a shot, and I will say this, it was so shocking at the time. I was in a bar, and I'll never forget the way that I screamed out, because I was, like, totally shocked. I had never um, reacted that way to a mixed martial arts fight in my life. I mean, maybe when Conor McGregor defeated Jose Aldo and Chris Weidman defeated Anderson Silva, but it was on that level where it was so shocking that he landed that that hook and then followed up with those clean, accurate strikes on, on the ground as Rockhold had been dropped, and you felt like, oh my gosh, he actually did it on two weeks' notice. This was the type of career that Michael Bisping had, and you felt so great for him because the once-hated heel had become very lovable, um, you know, in the past few years, once he started finding Talis Leites, Anderson Silva, Luke Rockwold, um, and so many people were happy for him to see his family in there, to see him finally get the championship, and then for him to not be able to uh, say nice things all the time after that fight was pretty funny because it was just his true, actual personality, and that's what we love so much about Michael Bisping. Um, then he gets to defend his title in uh, the UK once again in England against Dan Henderson, avenges that loss, and then, you know, obviously had two losses uh, in close succession against George St. Pierre and Kelvin Gastelum by, by rear naked choke to one of the greatest fighters in George St. Pierre, and then um, by KO uh, to Kelvin Gastelum, a fight which he took way too soon. But, uh, but it is what it is. All, all careers come to an end. But nonetheless, um, just what a fantastic career Michael Bisping had. I, I, I know that I'm going on very long here, but I just think that these guys put so much blood, sweat, and tears into the sport that they put so much of their lives on the lines. They make such sacrifices. And also the journeys that these guys go through, that when you have a legend like this, the first real English guy, the first English champion, of course, in the UFC, um, this guy is historic. He's a true legend of the sport, a true Hall of Famer, and I don't know if I'll ever see a guy who has persevered as much as this guy has and who's had that much self-belief. As far as a self-belief, maybe Connor. I mean, these two guys are in a stratosphere amongst themselves because they just believe that... Uh, against all odds, they will come out on top one way or another. Um, so, Michael Bisping, I, uh, mad respect to you. I salute to you, of course. And uh, just hope that he stays in the game, uh, whether it's uh, doing that analyst work and, and, and wish him best in his future endeavors, of course. He has given us a lot to be uh, to be happy about, to be entertained with. Um, countless interviews, countless fights, countless moments, weigh-ins, things of that nature. So uh, uh, let me know what y'all think, y'all's thoughts on Michael Bisping are. I think this is an absolute legend. I'm very happy to see him go out, uh, you know, maybe not exactly on his own terms, but I've definitely seen worse in the sport. So, All right, and last thing to talk about, Yair Rodriguez in the UFC, cut from the UFC, now apparently back in the UFC. What a weird, weird turn of events. Brett Akimoto, 
I was it Brock Hakeman? I don't know. It was reported a few weeks ago that abruptly Yair Rodriguez was being cut from the UFC, and it was shocking. Um, this was a guy. This is a guy who's 25 years old, who is the best hope to be a superstar, a uh, in Mexico because he is not only Mexican but born from Mexico. Of course, he's starting to do really well with his English speaking so he translates very well to the English crowd as well or, or to the American crowd as well because he can speak both languages um, this was a guy who's 25 years old a dynamic striker very exciting young featherweight prospect a guy who only has lost to Frankie Edgar in his UFC career and aside from that has looked very very good very very talented and has immense potential in in his background, of course, um, but that was in negotiations with the UFC about his next fight and what he wanted. I believe what he told Ariel when he got cut, because news came out that he had gotten cut after a report came out that he was going to be fighting Zabit Magomed Sharapov. Um, and he tweeted hashtag fake news. Then Dana White uh, came back with a tweet after he had been cut or released saying hashtag real news. So apparently that this this did not sit well with the UFC. Dana White even in press conferences afterwards says, hey, he doesn't want to fight. If you don't want to fight, then uh, you know you shouldn't be here or whatnot. So according to Yair Rodriguez, what happened was is that he was going through some you know personal business stuff that he needed to get taken care of in his fight since he had fought Frankie Edgar because that has already been let's see has that already been a year already yeah it's it's been over a year since he fought Frankie Edgar on May 13th so um, he hadn't fought in quite some time but also he was looking for what I believe was a top 10 opponent um, and he was not able to get that he apparently had agreed to fight Ricardo Lamas but then he but Ricardo Lamas didn't want to fight, so then he went on vacation, according to him. Once he was already on vacation, they said, hey, Ricardo will take the fight. Well, he said, well, I'm already on vacation, so no, I'm not going to. And then he said that he wanted to accept the Josh Emmett fight, but and, and that he did, but then apparently Jeremy Stevens was actually going to fight Josh Emmett, so they had chosen him over uh, Yair Rodriguez. So he said he you know he was fine with that but then they came with him about this to beat Magomed Sharapov fight and he said okay but if we fight in Los Angeles I would like a pay raise I would like to renegotiate my contract if we fight in Russia that is fine apparently they wanted him to fight in uh in uh in Los Angeles against Sabit and they were not willing to renegotiate, so he said no. And this sounds strange to everyone because they go, well, why would he want to renegotiate in Los Angeles? The way it came across to me was is that he thought that Los Angeles was a bigger fight card than the Russia card. So it wasn't thinking of, if I have to go to Russia, then I want to renegotiate. But if I have to go to Los Angeles, then I won't. I think what his thinking was is if it's a fight night in Russia, then fine then I'll stick with my contract it'll be fine uh, I get it 
it's you know how big is that event going to be but if it's on the los angeles card i want to renegotiate because that is a huge fight card and i think i should be compensated correctly i believe that that's what he was intending to say but i i was a little bit disappointed because ariel never really asked him to clarify exactly why he would be okay with it in los angeles but not okay with it in russia but from what i gathered that's what i think is that he saw it being a bigger card so he thought Bigger card, bigger payday. And that makes sense to me. So, But apparently, that did not sit well with the UFC either, so they decided to cut him. But now, on Friday, uh, ESPN reported uh, with Brett Akimoto saying that it was being targeted that he was actually going going to be fighting Zabit Magomed Sharapov at UFC 228 on September 8th. Apparently there was no uh, venue set for that date yet, um, but the fact of the matter is is that they had rescinded his, their termination letters to Yair Rodriguez, so he's no longer a free agent. I mean, this was a guy who, I think a week or two ago, came on to the MMA Hour and was saying, you know, I've got some good offers, I'm looking elsewhere, and, you know, this was a learning experience. One thing I'll say about Yair Rodriguez. Good job, Yair. I mean, to go on that show, say, hey, this is what happened. He was very honest. He said it was BS when the news came out, so he didn't back down from that, but also did not go out of his way to absolutely attack the UFC um, to all degrees. Uh, very, very smart by him. I think that he was very uh, professional in this whole thing. If anything, uh, the UFC, I thought, you know, in their own ways, we're somewhat professional, but Dana White himself, not very professional at all, but that doesn't matter, of course. I mean, he can do whatever he wants, So, but for Yair Rodriguez not to take the bait on that and just absolutely get into a verbal uh, firefight with Dana White, smart by him. Apparently, he had a friend that was... Uh, that was a, a common friend with Sean Selby, Shelby. They were able to get together uh, during a lunch on Friday, and they came to the realization that it was just a big miscommunication and bad timing is what he said on his note that he put out on Twitter, apparently. So, um, you know, one way or another, they got it done. But according to this report, the UFC has rescinded its termination. That the, his contract has resumed. I don't know whether to renegotiate it or not. It hasn't been 100% finalized, but it is expected that he is going to be fighting Zabit Magomed Sharapov at UFC 228 on September 8th. What I would say about this is thank God the UFC came to its senses. And B, this shows definitely that the UFC is not run the same way it used to be run. Back in the day, Yair Rodriguez would have been a guy that we may not have ever even seen back into the UFC. But I think this these days, cooler heads prevail. I think that there are different voices in the UFC that allow for these things to be mended for um, other than because back in the day, I think Dana, it, it was whatever Dana says, Dana, it goes. And when Dana was mad at you, that was it. You were gone. But now, you know, you have these guys uh, having different type of roles. Maybe Dana's in a little bit less of a vocal role within the company a little bit. I know he definitely is running the company for sure, but he may not have as much power as he once did. Um, but I think that that is a good thing because I think Cooler Heads prevailed here. This is a guy who, again, is a potential superstar for Mexico, uh, a, a market that they definitely want to get going and get uh, some good growth in. 
And if Yair Rodriguez is ever able to become the superstar that they thought he could be and wanted him to be, then this is a guy that you truly can market in Mexico because he, you know, his first language is Spanish. He was born in Mexico. Uh, now he speaks very good, uh, pretty good English, and it's getting better and better over time much much better than it was a few years ago so that's good for them to be able to market him to the american uh, market as well if they want him to fight in vegas or things of that nature and if he defeats a guy and does a beat magomed sharapov who is expected to be the next big thing at the featherweight division even though he lost to frankie edgar not great not you know pretty badly he was still 24 at that point very very young he's been off for a year you have to wonder what type of skills he's added how much he's been training what he's added to his game plans and and also to his intelligence and what he's learned from that loss um this is a guy who i think a lot of people are going to count out against abby magomed sharapov but i wasn't super impressed by Magomed Sharapov the same way that everyone else was in his last fight. If everyone else wanted to be over the moon and say he was a champion and this is you know, this guy is great and all this and all that, which is fine. I mean he, he is great. He's a great prospect in his own right and he should be the favorite going into that Yair Rodriguez fight because he has shown more tools. But Yair Rodriguez on the other hand is a is not to be trifled with. This is a kid who has absolute dynamic striking as well. I think that there's some holes in Magomed Sharapov's striking that he could take definitely take advantage of. So this is a very intriguing fight between two prospects in the featherweight division. Whoever wins is definitely going going to go on to have a much signif a significantly uh, higher task in that featherweight division. They'll start to fight the elite of the elite. I think this is an excellent fight for Magomed Sharapov. This is an excellent fight for Rodriguez. And I think it's excellent for the UFC to keep this talent into the UFC, especially at that prime age of 25. I mean, this guy hasn't even gone into his prime. This guy's going to start reaching it when he's 28, 29, assuming that he doesn't, uh, you know, suffer damage that, you know, quickens that pace, of course, to his body. Um, with that being said, I just think that this is a huge win for all sides together. I think it's a win for Yair because he clearly still wanted to be in the UFC, I think. I think it's a huge win for the UFC because, let's say Magomed Sharapov doesn't work out and you're not able to push him in Russia. Maybe you're able to push Rodriguez into Mexico if he does work out. Um, and this is just a great fight to put together. And thirdly, uh, the fans win because this is a fight that everyone wanted to see when Magomed Sharapov, uh, you know, came off his last victory. He called out Yair Rodriguez in a pretty respectful way. But then Rodriguez said, yeah, sure, let's do it. He said he had plans, but he wanted to do it. Ever since then, everyone's been hyped for this fight. This is one of the better prospect versus prospect fights that you can do, not only in the UFC's featherweight division, but just in MMA in general right now. So I'm really, really happy to see this come to fruition. And uh, hopefully all all things are good to go moving forward. It looks like Yari is saying that he's in a better situation than he ever has been before with the UFC. So it's um, probably not 100% true. But the fact that, you know, they were able to mend the fences, they were able to come to the conclusion that, hey, let's take away those termination papers, let's get you back in here, and uh, let's get you a big fight on a big card, um, that's definitely a positive sign. And um, I like that the UFC was able to say, you know what, we'll go back on one of our decisions, we're not just going to be a stubborn old UFC like we once used to be. 
Alright guys, so let me know what you think about that Yair Rodriguez situation, how excited you are for that fight, that's going to be a fantastic fight versus Magomed Sharapov, and then uh, what you think, what's your favorite memories from Michael Bisping, uh, what do you think about him, maybe you hate him, so let me know about that too, at Zapata MMA on Twitter, and then Marlon Marais versus Jimmy Rivera, what do you think is next for Marlon, should he get that title shot, or should he have to fight one fight more, and then lastly, Darren Till versus Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. Still like to see everyone's reaction to that fight card or, or to that that um, that decision, of course. And uh, also what you, you thought about my uh, take on robberies and the word and how annoyed I am with it clearly at this point in time. So, again, that's at Zapata MMA on Twitter. Until then, guys, um, we got a big, big fight week coming up. Uh, let's just look at it real quick. I'm going to try to do some... I'm going to try to do some predictions for it. No promises, of course, because uh, the way work goes is just that that obviously holds first priority. But super excited to see this fight coming up next for the UFC. Uh, Robert Whitaker versus Yoel Romero 2 coming up next Saturday in Chicago, Illinois. I think that that's going to be a much closer fight than many people will, will um, give credit to. I think that Whitaker, although he had a badly damaged leg after that first round, Yoel Romero, in my opinion, has actually gotten even better and more intelligent since his fight, since his fight with Robert Whitaker, and um, I think that has a better understanding of his skill set and game plan um, than he ever has before. So that's an intriguing, intriguing fight. Rafael dos Anjos versus Colby Covington for the interim welterweight championship. So get ready for co some controversial statements with Colby Covington. That's going to be an interesting uh, fight week for him. Holly Holm going up against Megan Anderson at, in one, at the 145-pound division. That is a fantastic fight. Uh, a true legend in Holly Holm uh, going up to 145 to fight a fresh new face in Megan Anderson, who is a true 145-er. She's huge for the weight class, and she's looked up to as potentially being the person that could defeat Chris Cyborg Santos. Um, you know, maybe has that opportunity to get in there. Then you've got Andre Arlovsky versus Tai Tuivasa. Tai Tuivasa be, the, being the uh, prospect from that uh, Australia, New Zealand area over there, going up against the legend Andre Arlovsky. Then you have CM Punk making his uh, <laughs> his return against Mike Jackson. So that's going to be a, another storyline in its own right. But at least it's, um, at least it's the second fight on that main. Uh, main card so that we don't have to wait around too much for it. Then you have Claudio Gadelia versus Carla Esparza, two elite uh, flyweights or uh, strawweights right there. That's going to be an excellent fight. Alistair Overeem, absolute legend in the heavyweight division coming up against one of these up-and-comers, Curtis Blades, who has had some significant momentum here as of late, so that's going to be fantastic to watch. Rashad Evans to, facing off against Anthony Smith in his return to the light heavyweight division. You have Clay Guida versus Charles Oliveira, which will actually be a fun, entertaining fight. Uh, you could see some action action there. And then Joseph Benavides, one of the best elite uh, flyweights in in the UFC, potentially the second-best flyweight of all time. Of course, Demetrius has, has long reigned over that division. But going up against Sergio Pettis, Pettis, who is coming off a loss to Henry Cejudo, has another opportunity to prove that he's ready for that title shot if he can defeat Joseph Benavides. That, that's going to be an excellent, excellent fight there. Um, going to be interesting to see how Joseph comes back, but 
that's a lot of fights to be excited for. Let's just hope for health, for good luck, for good weight cuts, uh, no issues. Until then, guys, let me know what y'all think of everything we talked about. What are you most excited about for UFC 225? That is a can't-miss card. I will say it again, that is a can't-miss card. Um, there are, you know, for for me, the avid MMA fan, I you know, all cards are can't-miss, but this one, for even a casual fan, you have to be um, tuning into this card next Saturday night. So until then, I'll see you all next time. Bye.